difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Keith Phipps. And stepping out from behind the production board while Rachel Handler's out of town... Genevieve Kosky. We all firmly believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current release. This week, we have a Capital Pictures double feature as we look at two Coen Brothers movies made 25 years apart, both about aspects of filmmaking at the same fictional studio. Genevieve, you want to lay out the roadmap for The Life of the Mind? That's a trick question. There is no roadmap for The Life of the Mind, and exploring it can be painful. But we're going to try. Back in 1991, filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen had a reputation as dilettantes who tried out a series of genres but hadn't developed a distinct identity yet. Their fourth film, Barton Fink, feels like an answer to the questions critics were asking at the time. It certainly has a strong identity, and it defines who the Coens have always been. It's the story of a screenwriter with writer's block fighting to get words onto paper in a hotel that's disintegrating as fast as his sanity. He's working for a studio called Capital, the same studio at the center of the Coen's latest film, Hail Caesar. Both movies are about life in the industry and the difficulties of making art, but Barton Fink is a bleak, dark comedy about a single man who's losing his mind, and Hail Caesar is a brisk, light ensemble comedy about an industry where everyone seems like they're on the brink. Come on, Tasha, two movies about making movies. What do you need, a roadmap? Man, there's a lot of roadmapping in Barton Fink. Okay, I'll try to draw you one. In the first half of this week's episode, we'll look at Barton Fink and the Coen brothers' history, and we'll share some feedback related to recent episodes. In the second half of the discussion, later in the week, we'll bring Hail Caesar into the mix and discuss how the Coens have changed over the past 25 years, and how these two films suggest their perspective on Hollywood has changed. And finally, we'll offer up some recommendations on our closing segment, Your Next Picture Show. But first, let's all remind ourselves, we create! We create for a living! We're creators! We're creators! Celebrating the completion of something good! Do you understand that, Taylor? Beat it, great! Come on, buddy. Give the Navy a dance. Let somebody else spin the day! Step aside, 4 eyes. Hey, 4 Take the height! Suck an ass! Don't sit on a tomato! I'm a writer, you monsters! I create! I create for a living! I'm a creator! I am a creator! Screw it! This is my uniform! This is how I serve the common man! This is where I... Get aboard! Barton Fink has an interesting distinction. It was the first movie to win multiple major awards at the Cannes Film Festival, which at the time habitually restricted those awards to one per movie. After the Coens walked off with the Palme d'Or and a shared Best Director award, while their star, John Turturro, won Best Actor, the festival altered the judging rules so a given film could only win a maximum of two awards. Barton Fink was the first and last Cannes awards sweep, and when it hit American theaters after Cannes, it was a critical hit as well. And yet it barely featured at the Oscars that year, and it was a certified flop at the box office. The Coen brothers are very distinctive, idiosyncratic filmmakers who make unusually textured movies full of sharp, striking images and unusual characters. But they aren't always accessible, and they've rarely been less accessible than they were with Barton Fink, a weird, sour, claustrophobic little comedy about a weird, sour, claustrophobic little man. This isn't a film for everyone. It's visually dark and oppressive, and its central character is a man who's failing at what many audience members may see as a dream job, banging out a simple script for a Hollywood studio. 
The Coens' latest movie, Hail Caesar, is much more of a crowd pleaser. It's full of big stars like George Clooney, Josh Brolin, Scarlett Johansson, and Channing Tatum, all playing big, broad roles in a story that's nominally about the troubles of Hollywood. But where screenwriter Barton Fink seems to hate his sellout job, Hail Caesar is a big, enthusiastic love letter to the industry. It acknowledges that filmmakers are a bunch of difficult egotists, but the Coens spent so much time looking at all the energy that actually appears on the big screen that the steps behind the screen seem comparatively small and untroubled. Maybe that's because of where the two films came from. The Coens wrote Barton Fink, a story about writer's block, while they were trying to overcome writer's block back at the beginning of the 1990s. It's an angry, insular film about the insides of their own heads and how professionally stymied they felt at the time. But Hail Caesar is a look back to a stylized, idealized Hollywood golden age. It's set in an indeterminate period in the 1940s or 50s where the studio system was pumping out classics, no matter how many scandals were getting covered up off screen or reshaped to fit the studio's needs. It's a nostalgia piece, openly inspired by bright memories of the classics. The funny thing is, Barton Fink is a period piece as well, set in 1941. But it's been so little time outside of its hotel room that the era hardly matters. Roadmap or no, it's about the life of the mind, not the life of the studio. Looking at two Coen Brothers films made 25 years apart, but both dealing with the same industry and the same imaginary studio in something like the same era, seems like a perfect opportunity to dig into how the filmmakers have changed over the course of their career, how often they come back to the same issues of disintegration and chaos, and how they veer back and forth from film to film at deciding whether to take a comic or nihilistic look at those forces and what they mean, and how they affect people who either feel them deeply or are too blithe and happily ignorant to understand the weight of the world. The Coens have addressed traditional dramas and offbeat comedies with the same level of skill, but their films suggest wildly different worldviews while still coming from the same familiar film-obsessed perspectives. So when this film came out, the Coen brothers had made three films, a comedy, a gangster film, and a neo-noir. And you would think that critics would respond to that favorably. You know, here are a couple of guys who are doing all sorts of things and doing them all well. But I've read all of these pieces from the time that are just are very down on the Coens as not knowing what they want to do, not having a, a signature yet. And then along comes Barton Fink, which seems very idiosyncratic, but also really weird. Do you guys remember how you reacted to it the first time you saw it? Yes. Actually, it's very strange to hear you talk about their earlier films as being not that well-received or having some trouble with critics because I had the complete opposite impression. By the time Barton Fink showed up at the local multiplex, which at this time I was in college, this would have been in Athens, Georgia, you know, the Coens were absolutely worshipped among... you know The Coens and Hal Hartley were the two mm. filmmakers that all of my college cinephile friends were really gravitating towards. So it's, so it's very strange to think that, you know, I know that Roger Ebert wrote a fairly high profile negative review of Raising Arizona, for example, but Bill's Crossing and Blood Simple but were both quite well received. Am I wrong? It's not that they weren't individually well received. It's that if you go back and look at specifically, like I think it was Vincent Camby in The Times mm. says something specifically about how they make distinctive movies, but they haven't distinguished themselves. Like it's not clear who they are They yet. didn't have that Coen Brothers feeling yet. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> I, I, on a on one hand, I'm not sure I even know what that means. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, I think sometimes it's more in the writing. There's a lot of stylistically moving from, from genre to genre, but the writing is so distinctively Coen Brothers in all those first four films and all the subsequent films. So it seems like a very odd thing to say. I mean, just having rewatched Raising Arizona recently, and you can kind of see 
you know, I think the Coens now, and even by the time of Barton Fink, there's not really, even by the time of Miller's Crossing, there really is not a wasted moment or a wasted shot or a wasted line. Raising Arizona still has a little bit of uh, that. I think in, there's some scenes that like, I'm not really sure what they contribute as funny as they are. But nonetheless, the the, the style of the writing, the voices of the characters and, the, and sort of these overarching themes, um, you know, the relationship between happy and, happiness and money, which is, I think, comes something that you can point to in almost every single Coen Brothers movie. It's, they're all are already in place very early on. But I mean, does did Barton Fink itself stand out for you as a film? Do you remember seeing it for the first time? I remember seeing it for the like? first time. I probably didn't see it until it was on. I probably didn't see it until it was at the video store. Uh, I remember seeing Raising Arizona in the theater. And then I don't know if Miller's Crossing played Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> I know that was thing I discovered on, oh, these guys have a movie. <laughs> I think it was sort of my, no, I knew about it through Premiere Magazine, but I don't think I got, I know I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater. Barton Fink, yeah, I think it was a video store thing. And and, and I remember thinking, this is a movie I'm going to watch over and over again. And I have actually, <laughs> you know, this, it's a movie I revisited a lot. And, and, and part of why I like it is there's no figuring it out. There's, there's mysteries to it. You know, no matter how many times you see it, that's part of what I appreciated about it. And, and I th- find my feelings about it shifting a little bit over the years, too. I think I think I was a little more sympathetic to, to Barton when I was younger <laughs> than I am now. Uh, and well, I think, in that case, I'm glad I didn't know you when you were younger. <laughs> well, I don't know if that reflects badly. That may reflect badly on me now, though, you know? it's like Yeah, that's a whole separate question that I'd love to get into. But first, Genevieve, what, do you, what, what are your early impressions of Barton Fink? Well, I will spare telling you guys how old I was when Barton Fink came, came out in theaters. But uh, suffice to say, I wasn't really cognizant of what the critical community uh, thought of it at the time. I was more concerned with like Beauty and the Beast at that point. But so the first time I saw it, what I, I saw it for the first time at the exact wrong time because I had just kind of become aware of the Cohen brothers through Oh Brother Where Art Thou and Big Lebowski which both mm-hmm. happened like in late 90s in t- t- or t- toward, toward the end of my high school career. So I saw Barton Fink for the first time in college. And at that point, those were the only two kind of Coen brothers experiences I had. And it just was so weird. Like I had, n- I had no way to contextualize it. I d- did not connect to it in any way, <laughs> really, except thinking like that was really weird and maybe felt like a bit of a waste of my time because I just wasn't at the right spot for it, I think. The second time I saw it several years later and was a much more advanced uh, movie watcher and Coen Brothers appreciator, it, it made a lot more sense in the way we're talking about now in the context of the Coen Brothers career. And then just rewatching it again for this podcast, it kind of opened a new level of appreciation for it as a film about filmmaking and, and obviously watching it with Hail Caesar amplified that. So it it's like you said, it's it's kind of a movie that reveals different aspects of itself to you every time. Yeah, for me, I mean, I just associate it so strongly with some of the other films that I was discovering that year, like Delicatessen and uh, some of David Lynch's stuff. I do associate the Coens with Hal Hartley specifically because he was so big at the time mm-hmm. and because I discovered them at the same time. The, the manic humor of Raising Arizona was so delightful to me that I, like there was a period of probably five years where every time I went into a film of theirs, I was looking for that and was mm. <laughs> kind of baffled when I didn't get it. And this film is not a film to walk into expecting Raising Arizona. It's just, I mean, it's more like Delicatessen. It's just, it's so dark. It's so weird. It's so oppressive in so many ways. And I remember being really disappointed with it the first time out in a way that, you know, once you both know what you're expecting and have more of a sense for the Cohen's tastes and what they're trying to say like that disappointment isn't there at all it's just it's 
purely an expectations thing. I actually have a very distinct memory of where I was when I saw this film. What I, you know, I, I remember seeing it at this mall multiplex and just it being over and just standing in the parking lot, not getting in my car for a while, just utterly shaken by the experience of seeing it because because that last third is just such a mind bleep. <laughs> See, if we're going to keep this a family podcast, <laughs> I don't have to say mind bleep. Um, and, it, and, it, and it really is, um, I guess, dark and oppressive as the first half of the film is. It still doesn't quite lead you to that point. It, the film does kind of go off that cliff and it still, to this day, does make you think about what does it all mean? What is mm-hmm. it? And I guess maybe we'll sort that out uh, the last third of the movie, but um, it certainly doesn't go in an expected place and it's and it goes to a very disturbing place. Because I think, I mean, I think one thing we haven't talked about and maybe we will uh, in terms of our first reactions to it is that it is a really funny film uh, for a good chunk. I mean, there is a lot of comedy in there involving, you know, stuff involving Michael Lerner and, and John Polito and, and Tony uh, Shalhoub mm-hmm. is amazing. as Ben Geisler. Um, Geisler? Geisler? And Chet? What about Chet? You say Chet. Doesn't everyone like Chet? Um, Chet's the funny looking man. guy. Yep. Yep. Are you a, what is it? Are you a, uh, are you a res or a, uh, uh, res or a trans? Re, re, res or trans. Um, that joke plays so differently today. <laughs> I think the last shot is hilarious too, <laughs> but I guess we'll get into that when we talk about the ending too. There's but. certainly that, but also just John Goodman. I mean, the rhythms of the conversations that that Goodman and Tatura have in uh, one or the other of their hotel rooms, like play as such bleak, dark comedy today. And when you're when you go in without expectation, without like understanding how the film is going to work some of the stuff that comes across in those scenes is incredibly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to get to a point where you've seen it and you know where it's all going before those conversations become a little more tolerable. I mean, I even rewatching them this time, I still found them kind of excruciating, like in a good way, like in a very emotionally moving way because they're so well crafted, so well put together, but there's still just like this dark undercurrent of like hilarity to the way Torturo keeps cutting Goodman off and keeps not understanding like the irony of everything coming out of his mouth. Watching this most recent time, I was kind of like developing a complicated theory that I'm sure I'm not the first person to uh, suggest that the hotel is hell and Charlie is Satan. Mm -hmm. And I was watching it all through that lens, which just made that character and John Goodman's performance so much more delightful than it already (laughs) was, which is saying something. And I don't think that metaphor completely hangs together, but it is an interesting lens through which to view that character and kind of all of John Goodman's characters for the Coens. He he is uh, one of their regulars who I think thrives in a, a very specific type. Boy, I, my first thought is his character in Oh Brother, Where Art mm-hmm. Thou? And how well that fits into that yep, theory. For sure. At the same time, I find, you know, uh, Charlie's vulnerability really moving in, in a mm-hmm, way for mm-hmm. for a likely serial killer but at the same time but but it's every time like he talks about being insulted and all this stuff but he's also the one of the stories that gets cut off is obviously him you know trading sex for a late payment like he's talking about the most casual way possible this this really detestable act it's it's a fascinating character and and i was all of those stories of his i was viewing as him testing barton because i feel like their whole relationship all of those conversations they have and it's always barton's hotel room we never see charlie's room either, oh is that true yeah, yeah. Um, Um, which adds a level of mystery to his character. But anyway, like all those conversations they have, it all seems to be Charlie goading Barton into asking him questions. Like Charlie is presenting himself like, I am the common man. I am the common man that you are talking all this highfalutin language about. 
I have, I, I could tell you stories. I could tell you stories. Like he says that many times and it's, it's just there. It's waiting for Barton to be like, tell me one of those stories. Or he knows all about wrestling pictures. He loves wrestling pictures and Barton's and having actual trouble. wrestling. Yeah. And Barton's having trouble writing a wrestling picture and he never, it never even occurs to him to ask Charlie something. Strange as it may seem, Charlie, I, I guess I write about people like you, the average working stiff, the common man. Well, ain't that a kick in the head? Yeah, I guess it is. But in a way, that's exactly the point. There's a few people in New York, hopefully our numbers are growing, who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths, not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I don't guess this means much to you. Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point that we all have stories. The hopes and dreams of the common man are as noble as those of any king. And I feel like that character exists to highlight this sort of artistic vanity that Barton think has that I think is his central flaw as a character and as a flaw that I think the Coens return to several times. The Coens character that Barton Fink reminds me most of is Lewin Davis, Mm. um, just as far as being so stuck in their own perception of themselves as an artist or as a creator that they are totally blinded to the realities of their situation. And also just having a a tremendous arrogance about him, like an Mm -hmm. arrogance that everybody finds off-putting that he's unaware of. Though I would say the difference, though, is that Lewin Davis is a legitimately talented artist. I I mean, the music that he creates is excellent. And I think think you could look at Barton's work and think this is just pretentious junk he doesn't really I, know he doesn't really he can't really speak i mean he banged out a script in an entire night and all i don't think that's he can't really fair speak, he can't really speak for the for the fishmongers and also there's like <laughs> and, and 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 also you know I, I think there's kind of this element a very strong element of self-deprecation to barton fink that may not be present in lumen davis uh, you know mm-hmm. this was a, a film that grew out of writer's block uh, on miller's crossing specifically and i think this was kind of one of those situations where the, the cohen's were presenting their worst possible image of themselves mm-hmm. on screen but i think getting back to the question of whether barton fink is talented or not i think like so much in this movie the Coens do not give us enough evidence to make a judgment. Right. Uh, we, we see an, a snippet of the end and the audience likes it. And we know his character. We, when we get to know Barton, we know he knows nothing about the common man, but it's separating the creation from the work. Maybe the work is fantastic, you know, uh, even, even if it's not necessarily informed by firsthand knowledge or even the kind of sympathy you think he would need to have. Toward the end, maybe he's turned out a brilliant script. We don't know. We know it ends the exact same way his play does, <laughs> which is not necessarily evidence for that. But I still, again, I, I think there's so much withholding of information or so much teasing of, of information in this movie. I think that's part of what makes it so intriguing and so and so rewatchable and so discussable. And this is something I'll get more into in the second segment when we talk about Cohen characters. But I think a lot of that is the fact that Barton doesn't really have a backstory. A lot of Cohen characters don't, we don't know where they were before the story started, you know? And like, I think Cohen characters tend to function more as storytelling elements than as people, as recognizable people. And like, like I said, we don't really know anything about Barton Fink going into this other than that he wrote a, a play and people liked it, you know, like maybe he does come from the common man and he has gotten, he has strayed from it, but that is not something the Coens are interested in exploring. I don't think they are interested in the character so far as it applies to the story they are trying to tell in this film. 
I mean, I think there's a distinct feeling that he is a a Jewish New York intellectual. He is a very specific type and that he's self-hating in all of those things and wants to associate himself with the common man without necessarily understanding what that is. Mm -hmm. But I'm with Keith. I, I think he hit the nail on the head. Inside Lewin Davis hands you his art like on a platter and lets you experience it for yourself and judge it for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. It's presented as beautiful. People react to it as though it's beautiful. But so much of it is withheld within Barton Fink that you're kind of left to judge him through the lens of how he judges himself and how he presents himself, which is not always the best way to appreciate an artist. But I want to circle back to what Keith was talking about, about sympathy and kind of how our sympathies change. Because rewatching this, I, I think I had the same experience where the first time I saw it, I sympathized more with Barton Fink being in this horrible hotel and this horrible situation, This the discomfort comfort of writer's block, the helplessness of being told to produce in an environment where he's not really clear on what he's trying to produce. This time around, we're watching it. I think Keith and I are both coming from the perspective of people who have spent decades as editors, and we know what it's like <laughs> to be waiting for a piece that doesn't come in because the guy's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm having difficulties, which I can't express and which are not in any way related to the fact that you have a picture that you need to make. Like, I, I don't think that we're meant to sympathize with any of the studio flax or studio heads that we see. But I do think as people who write for a living, even though we've probably all experienced that writer's block, we're maybe a little less inclined to, to deeply sympathize with somebody who ignores every avenue of aid that's presented to him because he's so caught up in like his own sympathy for himself in his life of the mind. Yeah, it's, I mean, and I think the editing thing is, is a good comparison because it's like you have a very specific assignment. I know what I want. I want you to put your own voice on it, but please give me what I'm looking for. But, al but also <laughs> as an editor, you would never assign a writer who has no background yeah. or interest in the subject you want a piece written about. And, right. And, and that is, I think, where the criticism of, you know, film industry, is, especially at this particular point in time, come from. But I, just put on the record, I'm right there with you guys. I find Barton kind of insufferable for a lot of the same reasons. I will say in terms of shifting sympathies, though, if you are a 17, 18 year old kid whose brains are their best aspect mm. and you have literary, you know, you have literary interests and a perhaps overdeveloped sense of integrity, you're not going to be with him all the way through the movie, but you at least kind of see where he's coming from, you know maybe be a little more sympathetic to where he is and perhaps a little more a little later in life when you have a little more experience of how the world works make your deadlines but, <laughs> but there, there's a, a moment early in the film that i i didn't catch till this most recent time through that just sets that like insufferable aspect of his character in stone and it's like right at the very beginning when he's talking with i think his agent the one who tells him to go out to hollywood and he's giving his whole spiel about, you know, I want to create a new type of theater. And he's talking all this big game about his lofty ideals. And then just as an aside, his his agent, I hope it's his agent, I'm going to assume it's his agent, says, like, did you see so-and-so's review? And his Barnes & Me response is, no, what did it say? Like, there, <laughs> there's this um, just, like, immediate undercutting of everything he is saying about himself. And I, I think that just this time through set for me. 
a certain like baseline level of disgust with Barton as a character while still thinking he is a fabulous character and like this is a wonderful movie like by no means is an unsympathetic character a bad character for me that disgust mostly comes from his first long conversation with John Goodman where there's a like you get the sense when he's talking to his agent about wanting to make a difference that his humility is real like he really does believe that it would be arrogant of him to overpraise his own work but when he's talking to Goodman that shifts and all of a sudden he's talking about you know people like you I I want to relate to people Mm -hmm. like you and there's a condescension in that and in the way he keeps cutting Goodman off and dismissing him and ignoring him and the way he can't see his naked loneliness that just becomes very off-putting and it's a very subtle thing that I think I just wasn't equipped to comprehend as a teenager just as a real quick aside and I'm maybe uh, displaying my ignorance here but were wrestling pictures a thing like I can't think of any wrestling pictures from from that era, what, but you, I am I am not see super well hell in in ten square feet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like really fascinated by this supposed B movie genre of wrestling pictures. They uh, were, is my I mean, I'm not an expert on this. They, they were not as common as boxing pictures, but I believe Faulkner, who was the inspiration for J.P. Mayhew actually worked on a wrestling picture if okay. i'm if i'm did have a dame not or a, a uh, dame or an orphan, <laughs> or an orphan. <laughs> why not both I, I just i remember uh reading something that you know the cohen's kind of did no research for this it was all just kind of a going from their general perception so i kind of like the idea that they just made up a genre <laughs> for this yeah there's such a strange thing with them i like they don't much like talking about their work and they are probably pretty close to top of my list of people who i watch their films and then I want to know what they say about their work. And then if they actually do an interview, I think I wish I didn't know that. I yeah. wish I hadn't read that. Except the mystery is, uh, to quote a serious man, except the mystery. You know, one thing to go... Look at the parking lot. Look at the parking lot. <laughs> uh, to, go, to, go, to go back a little bit um, in terms of the c- characters and trying to distinguish them, I think there's a lot of respect, and we see this more with Hail Caesar, for people who get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think there's kind of a distinction that needs to be made, not just between Barton and the studio, but Barton and the learner's character, I can't remember his name, uh, the, head of, the head of the studio, and then Ben Geisler. I think they have a tremendous amount of respect for the Ben Geisler type, and then, and of course, the, the Mannix type from uh, Hell Caesar, who just executes and that is their job and that is what they're that's what they're going to do um and uh, i think you you know with this whole assignment i mean they barton is kind of set up to fail because they don't know that he, they uh, this, the sense is that given that he writes about the common man that perhaps the wrestling picture is what he's best suited to do <laughs> but but he doesn't know that he doesn't know that and, and uh it is, as ben geisler said you know he forgot about him before he even left the meeting so uh, i think there's a different level of you know respect that i think the cones have for professionalism for people who get things done and i think that's interesting that's an interesting take in terms of their career because they put out movies pretty regularly you know like they they haven't had a a huge creative lull you know and they the fact that they are able to remain as idiosyncratic as they are is exceptional but they get it done they do get they get it done their way which is something that Barton Fink is not able to do. But maybe that is uh, kind of the point in what they were wrestling with here. Well, he does sort of get it done his way. I mean, there's every sense that he does, in fact, sit down and bang out a picture that is all of the things he wants out of that script, even though it has nothing to do with what the studio wants. And I think realizing that it ends the exact same way may give us a hint that he's just kind of reproduced his first success. But at least he, he has created something that satisfies his life of the mind. 
I mean, it takes him forever to get there. And he spends an awful lot of time. I think it's really important that when he's looking to other people for guidance, when he's looking to his favorite author, when he's looking to the studio head, he keeps asking, like, maybe you could like sort of lead me through what I'm supposed to be doing. He gets nowhere. And then when he sits down and possibly just reproduces what he's already done, like he's perfectly happy with it because he's going inside his own mind for once and just doing like what's important to him. And maybe that also is an autobiographical thing as well. I mean, the the Coen brothers, maybe they, I'm sure they suffered through making Miller's Crossing. And when they finished Miller's Crossing, it was a Coen brothers (laughs) picture, right? And, and which is not for everybody. They're incapable of making films, I think, for everybody. I mean, they try sometimes with the lady killers. And even, I mean, Hell Caesar, you could say it's a, it's a universal picture. Um, you know, they're trying to reach some sort of a larger audience, but they're too, strange for it they can't do a a capital pictures b movie that's not their style and it's maybe not barton's style and yet they connect it with the widest possible audience with a musical (laughs) set in the (laughs) south uh filled with uh, right that is the movie that introduced me to the cohen brothers i could think about that and i think a lot of it, it played forever in the south that movie and you know i think it was much bigger success than anyone had anticipated and and why it's it very odd highly stylized extremely coen brothers movie it's a version around, of the odyssey, yeah, I was gonna say, it's the odyssey. <laughs> and it's, it's strange to me that hail caesar seems not well i don't want to get too far ahead but seems not to connect with audiences because and actually actively not connected with audiences who gave it a c minus cinema score which is sort of impossible to get because it's it is fun and it is it is kind of a crowd pleaser. So it's it's very it's I, I don't know if there's any predicting what's going to work for the Coen Brothers. Well, let's talk about what makes a Coen Brothers film. I mean, I, there's so much in this movie. I one of the things that that comes home most to me, I guess, is just the rhythm when the two cops are interrogating Barton Fink. There's a rhythm to the way they they play off of each other that immediately brought up for me like uh, the Hudsucker Proxy, the ad people talking in the Hudsucker mm. Proxy. There's so many actors here that we see over and over in Coen Brothers movies that that kind of the sharpness of like even the the dim dilapidated hotel just has this very Coen Brothers look to it. Scott, you were the one who said, you know, they sat down and made a Coen Brothers movie. What does a Coen Brothers movie mean to you at this point? I mean, it means different things. I think the the films they were making in that era are different than what they're making now. Um, as much as there are connections between Hell Caesar and Barton Fink, you know, a serious man is really, or something like that, that, that doesn't seem like something they were capable of doing or that you would expect from that at all back when they made Barton Fink. Uh, uh, you know, the line against them critically was was that their stuff was too mannered and too... Uh, cerebral too 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 mechanical too mannered uh, too cerebral i suppose uh, maybe a little too cartoonish but i think there is kind of a sense with uh, barton fink in the in the rhythms of the dialogue and the rhythms of the dialogue in, in a film like raising arizona or certainly miller's crossing of just sort of a, a way to reconcile older patterns of dialogue or the sorts of banter that you would hear you know in films from the 40s and 50s and in, in noir or something like that with with our modern day you know try to try to bring it up to the late 20th century in their own way i mean i think that that's one of the things that kind of stands out for me i guess about uh their earlier work which i think is again a little different than what they did uh, what they're doing now his name is charlie meadows yeah and i'm buck rogers name's munt carl munt also known as madman munt a little funny in the head what did he funny as in he likes to ventilate people with a shotgun and then cut their heads off. Yeah, he's funny, that word. Started in Kansas City. Couple housewives. A couple of days ago, we got the same M.O. out in Los Feliz. Doctor. 
Ear, nose, and throat man. All of which is now missing. Well, some of his throat was still there. Physician, heal thyself. Good luck with no f***ing head. Anyway. Hollywood precinct finds another stiff yesterday. Not too far from here. This one's better looking than the doc. Female Caucasian, about 30 years old. Nice, no head. Ever seen Munt with anyone fits that description? But, you know... With the head still on. Tasha, not to play like the lipnik to your Barton Fink and stroke your, <laughs> your ego here, but you, you know, you wrote a piece for The Dissolve about the morality of Cohen films and that, you know, you kind of joked at the time that it was your, your unifying theory of Cohen Brothers movies. And I, I, I mean, I thought that was a great piece. And oh, it has certainly, it, it certainly helped firm up in my mind what I think a Cohen Brothers movie is, which is very fixated on this idea of crime and punishment and i use crime loosely maybe sin and punishment you know just kind of heaping abuse or having characters heap abuse on themselves and seeing how it shakes out is that's come to define in my mind what a coen brothers film is And, and like that the sin can be something very simple like the sin of vanity or you know but it still becomes a central part of how how you read any given film of theirs. Yeah, for me, the the nut of that piece was always that it's not necessarily about violating some universal constant rule. It's not about the Ten Commandments necessarily. It's about people's individual morality and that individual morality is the only way to get through uh, like a serious situation. And I want to talk a little more about kind of that piece and Coen Brothers' morality, which to me still is kind of the unified field theory. But first, Keith, did you have any thoughts on what makes a Coen Brothers movie? You know, I, in some ways, I, I, just to give a slightly different answer than other people are giving, I think in some ways it is the crew that they've assembled and the elements that are the same across. Like I think Carter Burwell is so integral mm-hmm. to what they do. I mean, he, he makes from the beginning. He's written these wonderful scores. I mean, I mean, just to point to a different movie, but in, in Fargo, I think so much of the tone of that movie is established by this you know, heavy theme that plays as, as these headlights go over this snowy landscape. And it's like, this is a middle of nowhere place where something big is going to happen. Like this, this story is out of the way among people you probably don't encounter in your real life very often, but what happens here matters. And I, I think, you know, Burwell does, does a wonderful job here as well in terms of, of Deacons being yeah. their, their main cinematographer. Although Inside Lone Davis is a wonderful movie, a wonderful looking movie he didn't shoot, but he just seems like so in sync with what they do. Um, this uh, Roderick Janes, who edits their films. <laughs> so talented. <laughs> so talented. So Cohen-esque in his or her editing. Such an elusive uh, guy, too. You never, yeah, you never see him. Uh, it's interesting. I, I think you should but, probably explain that just for... <laughs> to, 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 to explain that Roderick Janes is the pseudonym under which the Cohen brothers edit their own films. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, there is, you know, as for as much as they skip across genres and styles and even tones you know i mean is here you know burn after reading and a serious band or i believe there was back to back and you know could not in many ways could not be more tonally different films there is a cohen touch i mean a lot of it's in the dialogue but so much is also it's sort of the craftsmanship that they and the people they work with bring to whatever they do repertory company as well you know there's it's great to see you know, it's it's fun to see them how they use the same actors in different roles across different movies. Yeah, yeah and I think they they really get more use out of their staple of actors, even than somebody like Christopher Guest, who uses the same ensemble over and over. But you see them playing sort of similar roles because they're playing to their strengths. You know, you're you're going to see a, like a, a wider variety of roles out of like Steve Buscemi or John Goodman than you necessarily are out of like Catherine O'Hara or. 
or um, Fred Willard, you know, which is nothing against O'Hara or Fred Willard. They're both hilarious actors, but I kind of see the same roles out of them over and over. And I feel like the Coens just have a really strong sense of like how far they can stretch the actors that they work with over and over. Yeah, to expand a little bit on a point Keith was making too um, about, you know, he talked about music, but I think broadly speaking, you could talk about their films as having a musicality generally i mean there's there's nothing out of place in a coen brothers film i mean uh, you know i, I y- you could call it mechanical but i, I think it's meticulous it's, it's meticulous it's actually very pleasing to watch the, their films are endlessly rewatchable not just because they're mysterious but because the craft is just so on point at all times well, you know? and, and Barton Fink just has so many indelible images like there I could probably name like a half dozen images from that film that I think you could point to as a quintessential Coen Brothers shot like the shoes lined up in the hallway or the the woman looking out over the waves or him looking at the woman looking out over the waves you know and the, just the the meticulousness on display and like every frame is it's every frame says something about the the film about the story being told I mean, even Barton Fink's look is just, it's so weird and iconic. And it reminds me more than anything. I associate this film very strongly with David Lynch's Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. And part of it oh, is yeah. just the hair. The hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a great comparison. Why didn't I think it's, of that? Well, used the sound as well. well and the, the, yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, like visceral. The, the long, way. uncomfortable pauses, the the sense of discomfort in the disintegrating environment, but also just that, that iconic image of the guy with the weird, tall hair and the narrow face and the blank frightened eyes because he's going through this completely untenable nightmare situation oh you're killing me that's such a great comparison i don't even i mean there's so much there's so many parallels there i I think i think that hotel room is more viscerally unsettling than anything in a razor head like this anytime he's in his room like watch like poking at the wet gluey wallpaper watching the bug like i get so like i'm uncomfortable right now just talking about it like i don't know and you just know the air is stale yeah and the mattress is terrible and one of my one of my favorite little details and this is such a cohen-esque detail is when he walks in the room for the first time and he's looking around and he sees a pad of paper with a pencil on it oh, and he yeah. moves the pencil aside and like the sunlight <laughs> has faded an outline around the pencil and it's like no writing has taken place in this room in a long, long time. Possibly nobody has been in this room in yeah. a long, long time. I mean, not only can you feel that the air is stale, you can feel that it's just like clogged with, with dust and the smell of everybody who's ever been in that room. See, now I, now this makes me want to defend Chet. Because <laughs> Chet, Chet is there for you at all times, <laughs> and he pretty much is the only guy running the entire entire hotel. Why does Chet so. hang out under the floorboards? What's under there? There's a whole under. world. There's under a the whole. There should be a whole other movie about, about the secret life of Chet. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of mysteries we haven't even tackled in this discussion. I'll throw I'll throw out one. What does Heil Hitler mean in the context of uh, that final sequence? That's an excellent question, and I don't know. I mean, I I take it to be just a further indication well it could be a further indication that he's satan although i don't love the satan theory because i i feel like he's much more patient both that he's more patient than satan Satan would be well i I, i'm viewing it more as like the lucifer version of of satan like the kind of the charmer the fall the fallen angel the yin to god's yang (laughs) but there's just something so human cipher (laughs) (laughs) he's a much much slicker Mm -hmm. again we should explain that that's from angel heart Heart, but i don't know there's just something the the combination of like naked vulnerability and like visible frustration and friendliness i guess could 
could work into a version of Satan. But to me, I, what makes it interesting is that he's so human. And that Heil Hitler for me is just kind of a a screw you of, you know, yeah, I'm crazy and I know it. It's just, it's like a little like period tacked on to the end of the sentence that is burning down the hotel and killing both of the cops. And I feel like, I, with all due respect to the, the, the hell and Satan theory, I, I feel like this is a movie that kind of loses something if you, when you try to do too many X, X equals Y oh, yeah. uh, things with it. You know? <laughs> I don't mean to suggest that it is a, a working theory. It's just an interesting lens through which to view that character. Yeah, and, and the degree to which reality kind of slips away, not just from him, but I think from the entire movie, I think is, is pretty fascinating as well. I, I think you're on unsteady ground throughout this film. Well, I do want to get back to the morality question, because when I wrote that piece, the the unified field theory of Coen Brothers morality, I remember one of the comments on that piece being somebody who wrote in really angry with me because he felt that Barton Fink, he, she, I don't even know. It's a uh, he. Go ahead. Oh, did you read this comment? No, I'm just saying that definitely is a he. (laughs) Angry and opinionated about Barton Fink equals man. Yelling at somebody on the internet. Okay. So uh, this person felt that one of the biggest, stupidest flaws in my theory was that Barton Fink, like I, I, I said that, you know, the fatal flaw that he has is that he sold out his talent for this thing that he doesn't believe in and he's being punished in the way so many Coen Brothers characters are punished for even the most minor in fractions against God or themselves or their beliefs. And this person felt that there's no indication that he's talented at all. And I feel like that's something we've sort of covered here is the the ambiguity of it. But there is a sense that you know, some people certainly appreciate his work. They may be like the rarefied New York intellectual Broadway theater goers, as opposed to the working men that he feels he wants to appeal to. But there is some reason to believe that that he has a talent. I'm sort of curious whether, like, do you think that he's being punished here? Do you think he's done something wrong? Or is this an absurdist story? Like, does it have a meaning to it? One thing I would say immediately is that I don't think you have to be talented, right? And that's, I mean, why, why do you have to be talented? Why do you have to be talented to sell out? I don't think that I don't think the two things are really related. I think you have to have principles that you sell out, but that doesn't necessarily. And certainly, Barton has strong principles that he is happy to share, you know, with anybody within earshot. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's talented. I don't think that that is actually kind of irrelevant to the discussion. So that's what that's my comment to <laughs> that guy's going to feel feel a burn now. Uh, <laughs> uh, what he needed was another man to put him in his place. He needed me to put him in his place. But but no, I don't think that's Yowza. really I don't think that's really um I don't think it's really relevant whether he's talented. I think he just it's relevant that he has principles. Well, I mean, guess I guess regardless of his talent, is this a morality play to you to the degree that it is to me? Like, do you think that he's done something and, and earned his time in hell? Or is this just a horrible universe where horrible things happen? Is a bad thing happening to a bad person here? Is a bad thing happening to just a completely random person who happened to be in the wrong place? I think to go back to the metaphor that we all think doesn't quite work, um, I think the a hotel is where he is being tested and he fails in that test because, you know, as I talked about with Charlie kind of giving him all these opportunities to prove himself and to, to walk the talk and him not recognizing that. But I, I just had this thought when you were talking about the idea of selling out and how it kind of plays into his obsession with the common man and theater, New York theater, or any theater really, is not the venue for the common man. Like, theater is expensive. You know, your average blue-collar worker does not go see a lot of plays. You know, film is the medium of the common man. That is where 
you know, someone could pay, I don't know, 50 cents or whatever. I don't know what a, what a movie taker ran that time and go see a story. So by appealing to him to come to Hollywood and write films, he is being asked to write for the common man, to make content for the common man. And he's not able to do that because of his own failings, whether moral or just ignorance. or I, I don't quite know, but I kind of think of the hotel as being his purgatory slash proving ground and it becomes hell literally at the end when he fails to live up to that challenge but i mean to keep this in the metaphorical zone i mean with the hotel though is the isn't the hotel sort of the life of the mind i mean in terms of being something separate from him instead you know instead of thinking about the hotel as being separate from barton wouldn't we would we think about the hotel as being his own deteriorating mind? yeah i mean right yeah. exactly being much more reflective of of his own of him punishing himself and him going through this process and the hotel itself being being very much a reflection of of his internal machinations not this separate place that he goes to but that is him yeah i mean i really feel that's true and that's why the heil hitler at the end doesn't interest me nearly as much as the fact that as goodman is like storming down the hallway burning it down and coming for the policeman he's screaming i'll show you the life of the mind over and over Mm. i'm curious how how do you interpret that Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah can i just say how annoyed i am that the dvd of barton fink has that scene as the menu scene like playing in the background dvd manufacturers stop doing yeah, this. Even Criterion with the inside Lewin Davis, I was showing to my wife who had never seen it before and I, I quick, you know, played it because, you know, they always get too much away and, and I watched it later and they, they, they had the uh, worst scrotum scene right there on the <laughs> you know, biggest laugh in the movie right there on the DVD menu. Why do uh, you do that? Like the trailers often have to have the big explosion at the end or the surprise twist or whatever in them to get people in the door. If you've already got the DVD at home, you don't need the biggest movie moment in the movie spoiled for you by the DVD menu. This is why physical media should be abolished. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we all agree on that. Thanks for lending me your copy of Barton Fink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, says the man at the table who probably owns the most Blu-rays of mm, any of us. Um, possibly. <laughs> um, I'll shoot life in mind. I interpret that. I don't interpret it. I, do, mm. I, just, uh, I, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, it could just be sort of Who a, is he saying it to? Like, well, I'm just saying, like, he's, he's, he's presumably not saying it to the cops. Like, yeah. it means nothing to them. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it, it, it can be just sort of a, a, I'm going to show you who you really are. It, it sort of it, it means essentially the same thing. Yeah. Know, but... It's just, for me, that becomes so baffling because if he was there to punish Barton Fink himself, like if that ended with him shooting him, I would see that sequence as you know, him coming for revenge of like everything he feels he's suffered at Barton's hands, being belittled and embarrassed and threatened in his own room. And as it is, it's like, I don't know, there's the scene with the writer where Barton says that suffering is necessary to create art, that, you know, all all art comes out of suffering. And the writer's like, I just like making things up. And it seems to me like, Goodman is saying, you know, I'm bringing suffering to you because this is what you think you want. Because afterwards, he's so conciliatory. You know, he's so kind. He feels like he's tearing down his value system one moment and then he's supporting him the next. They say I'm a madman, Barton, but I'm not mad at anyone. Honest, I'm not. Most guys I just feel sorry for. It tears me up inside to think about what they're going through, how trapped they are. I understand it. I feel for him. 
So I try and help them out. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I know what it feels like when things get all balled up at the head office. It puts you through hell, Barton. So I help people out. I just wish someone would do as much for me. Jesus, it's hot. But I, I think that you can almost say with the Coens, though, in the ending of that, that movie, that they were almost embracing the idea of abstraction as a concept. Mm. <laughs> because they, they had, with Raising Arizona, they had that component, I think, in Leonard Smalls, which is kind of the first... The, the biker from hell? The biker from hell, who was, you know, uh, this kind of quasi dreamlike character who, well, I, I, he he, he, he cage character dreams him first and then he appears right exactly which is a very abstract idea and but i think i think barton fink was kind of that thing like we're going to we can we can do that <laughs> and we can just take that all the way mm-hmm. and uh leave audiences to just to deal with it <laughs> i i don't know it's I, I, it's very hard uh you know i i think the, the proper response is that ex- except the mystery thing is is it's fun to puzzle over as we have have done but uh as meticulously planned as their movies are i don't see them leaving the ending of that of barton fink as a as a mystery that is solvable yeah i mean i feel like the ending of a serious man is much more ambiguous and difficult and confusing than the ending of this movie this movie the, i think this ending is perfect okay well speaking of perfect endings i hate to give myself the last word on barton fink but we've still got to get to feedback and we've been talking about this film for nearly an hour so well well we've got more barton fink talk to come up in the second part of this uh, this week's podcast but in the meantime i would like to share some listener feedback starting with a recommendation for a film that might make a, a good triple feature with our picks from the last episode, The Martian and John Carter, aka John Carter of Mars. Keith, you'd actually suggested the film that this listener suggested as a possible pairing with The Martian. You want to read the letter? Absolutely. Christopher Reese writes in to say he doesn't understand the negativity around John Carter, but thinks we could have picked a better match. A 1964 movie that was mostly forgotten until the Criterion edition came out. He writes... Robinson Crusoe on Mars stars Paul Manti, Victor Luton, Adam West, and was directed by Byron Haskin, who also directed the 1953 War of the Worlds. Yes, the title contains the word Mars, which I guess why, is why it failed when it came out in 1964. <laughs> the movie is about an American astronaut forced to crash land on Mars. He then has to survive until a rescue mission shows up. In the meantime, he discovers that an alien race has been mining the planet of ore using a group of slaves. He manages to rescue one who has oxygen pills so they can breathe without their space helmets. He names the slave Friday. They flee the hostile aliens, and they are eventually rescued by good old NASA. The special effects look pretty rough by today's standards. Think Forbidden Planet or Planet of the Apes or any sci-fi films before 2001 changed the game. But the film is thematically rich and interesting. I do not know if it served as one of Andy Weir's inspirations for writing The Martian, but the films certainly do share some, although not all, of the same concerns. Yeah, I mean, The Martian is basically Robinson Crusoe on Mars, not the movie, but so much as, as, as you know, kind of the same sort of narrative where someone has to survive and there's a lot of concern with very specific numbers and, and ways to do that. As for the actual 1964 film, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, I did consider it. I like the movie. I actually find the effects really charming. Yeah, and, me too. I'm yeah. not quite sure why he's dissing them. Yeah, yeah. I, um, 
I find the storytelling is a, is a little pokey. I'm not sure we'd find it that much to talk about. I don't know. Maybe I should give it another look. I, like I said, I do like the film and I would recommend it. Um, I just don't know if we can fill an hour of a podcast with that particular film. So, but yeah, seek it out. It, it's, it's a neat movie. Yeah, I remember it as, as beautiful in a way, but rather sleepy. And of course, mm-hmm. it, it does have kind of the Friday problem. I mean, I, anytime you're basing a movie on Robinson Crusoe, you've always got this like weird paternalism that comes in of spaceman American is going to uh, find the slave who needs to be taught a uh, good old American. Okay, well, we I mean, we did consider it for the show, but uh, John Carter, the reputation of John Carter and the the degree to, to which some of us felt it needed to be rehabilitated kind of went out. Um, Keith, go ahead. <laughs> but Scott, we've actually got another email about uh, suggested pairings for this week. Uh, would you like to read that one? Sure. Jen Small wrote in to alert us to one of Randall Monroe's excellent XKCD comic strips, which enthusiastically described The Martian as a book for people who wanted the entirety of Apollo 13 to be more like the scene where NASA has to, quote, connect this thing to this thing using this table full of parts or the astronauts will all die. She's surprised we didn't bring Apollo 13 into the conversation. Here's a quote from her letter. One of the things I find really moving and inspiring about both those films is the celebration of scientists, the spirit of exploration, and especially the celebration of engineers and problem solvers. I think stories where not everything goes right really brings the focus to all the work that goes into scientific advancement. I know that a lot of the discussion about the movie and the book focuses on Mark Watney and his fight for survival, but I found the portrayal of NASA, and particularly the engineers of JPL, pretty terrific. These are people who have to solve math and engineering problems in order to save a life, on an impossibly tight deadline. These are my heroes of scientific exploration. I wonder if Jen's an engineer. (laughs) Good question. Jen, you sound like an engineer. Yeah, thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there there is certainly something to be said for just the degree to which both uh, Andy Wears the Martian and, well, to the degree that Andy Wears the Martian relies on real science and real problem solving, and then to the degree that Ridley Scott in the movie trusted that information and trusted audiences to be able to get it. And I feel like the embrace of the movie kind of suggests that movie audiences are maybe a little smarter than a lot of movie producers give them credit for. And uh, we, could, we could use some more science heroes in our, our films. All right. Finally, in brief, we got a long, thoughtful letter from a listener who enjoyed discovering Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf through the podcast, but took issue with John Carter because of the ending. Genevieve? Sojin Yadav writes, just when John Carter got ready to go back to Mars, I was finally completely into it and could not wait for the movie's climax. Then the movie ends. Just ends. When I watch a movie, I want a fully realized experience. Maybe if it was called John Carter Part 1, I would have known what I was getting into. But there is an art to the cliffhanger. Why is Empire Strikes Back so satisfying? Since none of you brought up the ending in any way, I am assuming it did not bother any of you as much as it did me. I would still like your thoughts on this movie's ending and cliffhangers in movies in general. I wonder what Sojin thinks of the end of Barton Fink. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what Sojin thinks of the end of All the President's Men, which, as we all know, is completely what unsatisfying. What about Remo Williams? The adventure begins. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is this is where the, the you know this is sort of the perils of setting out to make a trilogy and then with mm-hmm. <laughs> your movie not doing well enough to do it see also the golden compass which actually they removed the ending of that because they're saving it for the next film yeah Never. and it ends with a speech that's like all right well there are many adventures left to come here we go to to meet those adventures let's follow this golden compass wherever <laughs> it will take us um but uh um you know this is you know that's the problem it, it is it's it's setting up you know, for a sequel that's, that's 
probably never going to happen. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's be practical about that. It's probably never going to happen. Taylor Kitsch's abs are just going to start like giving into gravity bit by bit over the years. <laughs> I It didn't even occur to me that the ending to John Carter was a problem. I, to me, the ending of John Carter is about the end of his struggles. He's been on this this 10-year quest to get back to Mars and then he gets back to Mars. Like we don't really need to see his happy, uneventful life on a planet where the bad guys are all gone. Like if they're going to be more adventures, that's great. But to me, the ending doesn't suggest any more adventures. They suggest that he's got what he wants. I mean, it could he could have adventures. I mean, if he it, could if, if there if were the sequels. Were, if the film were successful enough, he could have adventures. <laughs> um, but I, you know, in a way, though, I would say sometimes the cliffhangers, even good ones, are not that satisfying. I mean, I, I think my my daughter probably enjoyed. The Empire Strikes Back, least of all of the Star Wars films that you saw. And I think part of that was like, this is not complete, the story. This is, you know, and you can't, it's not like television where you can expect something the next week. You kind of have to wait for it. And you may, and you may just wait forever. Yeah. And we're getting more and more of those cliffhanger endings as we get more and more movies based on like lengthy book series. And it's, I agree that there's sort of an art to it. But I mean, even if you go back to like the Lord of the Rings films, there's kind of that, that sense of movie after movie ending with, and now on to the next adventure, dot, 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 you know, coming to your local Cinemaplex in 18 months. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's sort of a hazard of a long and ongoing story. I think in some ways you've got to just be patient and understand that these things are all going to play differently five or 10 years, like from now, like like any film will. But it's, <laughs> at the same time, it's also going to play different 10 years later when there's still no uh, John Carter from Mars, too. <laughs> well, as always, we, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on our website. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll get into Hail Caesar. Scott will inevitably call Channing Tatum the big brisket. And Genevieve will inevitably call him Charming Potato. You'll also get to hear this. Oh, I love that character so much. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then, of course, when he's... You're just pl- a sucker for rope tricks. Oh, the rope tricks. <laughs> Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcaster of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be working on our script for the next show. Would like to just freeform these things without any planning. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were so simple. Would that it were. Would that it were. Gone are my friends from the cotton fields away. Gone from the earth to a better land I know. I hear the gentle voices calling. Oh, Black Joe.